Truth Espresso, episode 271. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso, to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> and now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. <sighs> this is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Hello, my friends, family, foes, and lurkers alike. Welcome to another episode of Truth Espresso. This is your host, Daniel Minnick. We're going to talk about the topic of abortion again. And once again, this kind of came up as a result of another uh, exchange that I had on X. I seem to get a lot of this in my feed, arguments over abortion. And it seems that a lot of abortion advocates will give the same arguments saying it's all about bodily autonomy, it's all about women's rights, those who are trying to argue against abortion just have the motivation to uh, oppress and control women and so on. But at least on the face of it, some of them might have different ideas for what would constitute the right to life. Some might believe that we should have abortion on demand without apology up until birth. And some might say that the line would be at some point during fetal development. Most commonly, it's at where Roe versus Wade said it at viability. So around week 23 or such. So one person that I had an exchange with ultimately ended up sending me a link to a medical journal article that proposed a brain life theory. So instead of just simply whether it's viable or not, this was about the state of the brain or when brain activity develops. So at first, uh, this guy I was arguing with argued for bodily autonomy, and of course he persistently accused me of having certain motivations, such as wanting to control or oppress women. He also denied that a fetus was a human. Now, of course, language differs from one abortion advocate to another. Some will say it's human, but it's not a person. Some will use the term human and person as synonyms. But this guy was arguing that an embryo is different from a fetus, which is different from a human, that at certain stages, you can use a certain word to describe what this thing is. I pushed him to draw a line and define when an embryo or a fetus becomes a human. Uh, He continued to accuse me of more misogyny and uh, motivations for oppressing women. I shrugged his accusations off because I wanted to get him to explain, well, at what point does it become a human worthy of life in the womb? At what point, where is this magical line that we can draw? And I used the terms medicine and murder, so I asked him how we can distinguish medicine from murder. 
I responded to several of his arguments to press him for an absolute standard. So as he would keep proposing things like roughly around week whatever, 23-24, that wasn't satisfactory to me because like, hey, well, if it's one second after a certain point or one week after a certain point or whatever... Could he say that now we've entered the realm of murder, whereas before that it's just medicine? So I pressured him to propose for me an absolute standard. Like, where is your absolute standard? Because if you're so certain about one thing, and then you would be certain that there's such a thing as murder then where do we draw the line if what he's proposing to me is kind of roughly around, usually happens at type of thing? So finally, I know he was getting frustrated. He said that he needed to go to bed and stuff. I tried to be cordial. I didn't resort to ad hominems and shrugged off the barrage of ad hominems that he would send my way. But finally, he proposed a theory and posted a link to a medical journal article for me to read to get the idea of where he was coming from. So, as I said before, this is known as the brain life theory. It proposes that we determine human life or we define what constitutes human life by the same criteria that we discern clinically when it ends. So clinically speaking, if we determine that the brain has ceased to function in a way, then we determine that that person has died. And so this theory of when life begins in a certain sense is to reverse that and say, well, at what point in human development does brain activity occur that basically is consistent from then on? Now, of course, we know that an infant's cognitive ability is drastically different from that of, say, a 30-year-old adult. But basically, the brain life theory seems to take into account like some form of consciousness or sentience as the beginning of, you know, what we could refer to as human life in a kind of scientific, bioethical sense. So the article, I'm going to kind of look at a few highlights of it. It's by a Michael S. Gazaniga. It's from back in 2005, and it's entitled, The Thoughtful Distinction Between Embryo and Human. I'll provide a link to this in the show notes. And it's about a three-page article. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Of course, to avoid any kind of like copyright infringement, I'll exercise fair use to read a few sentences, a few snippets, and respond to it. Now, in doing so, I'm not claiming any kind of medical expertise here at all. I'm not criticizing any of the medical credentials. What I am evaluating when responding to this article is that the author here is using his experience and his medical credentials to try to ask questions, be honest, and do some critical thinking and try to form some semblance of an ethical standard. You know, I applaud him for doing that, but what I'm going to do in response is to try to ask questions to see if he has indeed come up with that this brain life theory is as solid as proposed. So once again, I'm not 
you can accuse me of saying, well, you're just some ignorant armchair critic here. You don't know the neuroscience that this doctor knows, and so how can you criticize him? Well, I'm basically criticizing the philosophy. I'm evaluating, I'm questioning, I'm bringing questions according to the philosophical arguments, the ethical arguments that this author, this doctor draws to see if it truly is airtight and consistent, especially when we're bringing up questions about life and death between, as I said before, medicine and murder. So, the first snippet I want to read from this article, quote, It is a given that a fertilized egg is the beginning of the life of an individual. It is also a given that it is not the beginning of life, since both the egg and the sperm prior to uniting represent life, just as any living plant or creature represents life. So, yeah, he's trying to say, like, okay, if we're just talking about life itself, both the sperm and the egg constitute individual lives. They're not human life. A human life, he's saying, biologically begins the fertilized egg. So he's acknowledging that. So obviously, the point here is that we have to distinguish between life in general and human life. After all, an amoeba is alive, a sperm and an unfertilized egg are both separately alive, an insect is alive. We aren't obligated to treat all life equally. We recognize that it's impossible to shepherd all life the same as we do human life. You know, as we're taking a walk, we may squish tiny insects under our feet and not realize it. We, as humans, couldn't even function at all if we had to worry about every single-celled organism that died from us inhaling and exhaling oxygen. It is only humans who are created in the image of God that we're talking about. We only evaluate the right to life and what murder is as between humans. So we're talking about the relationship humans have with each other. And of course, as a Christian, I say that also as the relationship that humans have before God. Now, let's look at an example for this. When male goats butt heads and fight over a female, and one of them happens to kill the other in the process, we don't treat that victorious goat as a murderer. We don't put it on trial by jury and weigh evidence and reach a verdict. The goats don't do that for themselves either. And God doesn't obligate us to do that. So yes, the valid point that this doctor is starting with is to say, yes, we recognize that human life biologically begins at conception. And we recognize that the sperm and the egg, although they themselves have their own life, we can't be talking about life in general. We're talking about human life to evaluate ethics. Uh, further down in the article, the next part I'd like to quote is, The fertilized egg is a clump of cells with no brain. The processes that begin to generate a nervous system do not begin until after the 14th day. No sustainable or complex nervous system is in place until approximately six months of gestation. 
And in fact, that's before the abortion advocate with whom I was arguing posted a link to the article. That was what he quoted in answer to my question, pressing him to define what we're arguing about when human life begins. And he was trying to claim that human life didn't begin at fertilization. He quoted this to argue that human life, or what we would evaluate as human life, didn't begin until six months of gestation. Now, the next quote, in the next paragraph, the doctor says, quote, Moral arguments get mixed in with biology, and the result is a stew of passions, beliefs, and stubborn, illogical opinion, unquote. Well, yeah, indeed, we have moral arguments, and long before we've had biology, we've had moral arguments, and we wouldn't have been able to have civilization and advance to the point where we can even have scientific studies in biology and neurology and so on, unless we had the morality, the moral system of not murdering and such, that would allow people to live long enough and reproduce until we got there. And also, we had to have laws such as thou shalt not steal to allow people to be able to pursue careers, to labor, enjoy the fruits of their labor, save up, get capital to be able to use to improve their lives and stuff. We had to have a, the, an absolute concept of theft is wrong and murder is wrong. So moral arguments precede necessarily biology. So it is really impossible to be able to come up with a moral argument starting merely from biological observation. Next quote in the next paragraph, down further in the paragraph, the doctor says, quote, However, in judging a fetus one of us and granting it the moral and legal rights of a human being, I put the age much later, you know, than the 14 days, at 20 weeks when life is sustainable and the fetus could, with a little help from a neonatal unit, survive and develop into a thinking human being with a normal brain, unquote. So, of course, yet again, a lot of people seem to think that the right to life somehow depends on whether you can separate a fetus from the womb, the unborn from the womb, and to be able to sustain its life. I really do not see, I'm not convinced as to why that determines whether the human fetus, the unborn, has a right to not be killed. Why is it that when it's most vulnerable, is it allowed to be brutalized against? Is it allowed to be snuffed out? I would think that when it's most vulnerable, we should have much more care to try to nurture it into a point where it's more viable. But of course, when you're thinking secular ethics and you already presuppose the idea that well, somehow there has to be a right to terminate a pregnancy. Then we have to figure out a point at which, well, we could still argue that we respect human life, but you know, for some reason it seems more like utilitarian for society as a whole in some kind of materialistic way. 
to just argue that, well, it doesn't really have a right to life and we'll, until we've deemed that it can somehow survive to be a fit member of society, it has that potential there. Of course, we also know that so-called fetal viability has changed since Roe versus Wade. Technology has advanced to help high-risk pregnancies and to care for babies outside the womb at earlier weeks. In fact, the earliest surviving birth on record was in 2020 when a baby, Curtis Means, in Alabama was born at 21 weeks and one day and weighed 14.8 ounces, which is just under a pound. Now that is a tiny baby outside the womb. And he was a twin, and his twin did not survive. I'll put a link in the show notes so you can read about Curtis Means. So his mom also holds a Guinness record for having Curtis as the earliest surviving baby. There might have been babies that were born earlier than that, like such as like 18 weeks, but didn't survive. Curtis happens to be the one who's still alive today, who would be three years old today right now. Even more recently, in 2023, the earliest surviving premature twins were born at 21 weeks and five days, and the girl was just under 12 ounces, and the boy was just under 15 ounces. So, yes, that's another modern miracle there to sustain the lives of surviving twins at just over 21 weeks of gestation, this halfway through pregnancy. That's, think of how amazing that is. The parents of these twins also hold a Guinness World Record for the youngest twins who survived. So there's a CNN.com article talking about the twins here. And what I like from the CNN article is what the parents had to say. So the article says, quote, it is a record referring to the Guinness World Record that they hold. It is a record that these parents say they want broken as soon as possible so more babies are given the opportunity to survive, unquote. In other words, they care about the lives of other babies more than the prestige of holding Guinness records themselves. And I think that should be the way we think of the unborn. Anyone that we can help to survive to sustain, that should be the goal of science and neuroscience and biology. That should be the goal of technological advances, not to perfect abortion procedures, not to just figure out, well, what could make the best argument for abortion based on analyzing when certain activities have happened. We need to know, of course, as much as we can about human embryology, human development, but it should be with a culture of life. It should be with the goal of trying to save lives, not destroy it, not to rationalize destroying it. So continuing down on the medical article from Dr. Gazaniga, we see, quote, if one is not willing to parse the subsequent events of development, then this becomes one of those arguments you can't argue with. Either you believe it or you don't, unquote. 
So he's referring to the idea of human life beginning at conception, and he's kind of thinking, well, what about the issues of IVF, like in vitro fertilization or different lab studies on frozen human embryos and stuff like that? You know, it's just, well, if you believe that, if you attribute the moral position to when biological human life begins at fertilization, then you're basically just forcing someone to accept that or not, and you can't uh, justify certain other things. Well, this was basically how I argued against my friend on X here. If we are supposed to agree that murder is wrong, we have to have an absolute standard. And that absolute standard cannot be arbitrary. That's what I tried to press. Like, show me the absolute standard from your position if you're trying to make absolute arguments for abortion. And basically, he told me to take my absolute standard and put it somewhere But I'd say if you don't recognize that there is such a thing as real and absolute right and wrong, then anything can ultimately be justified. Andrew Rappaport's Rap Report is a podcast providing biblical interpretations and applications. It is a ministry of striving for eternity and part of the Christian podcast community. We provide a biblical view of cultural events, discuss how to apply God's word to the Christian life, address issues that concern the church, and we even take some time to offer a correct understanding of those commonly misinterpreted passages of scripture. You will hear from great guests like Justin Peters, Todd Friel, Jay Warren Wallace, and Gabe Hughes. Andrew has the Rap Report Daily, which is a two-minute Monday through Friday podcast, and then the longer Rap Report podcast for more content. Subscribe to both today by searching for Rap Report on any podcast app, spelled R-A-P-P, Report, or click the podcast link at strivingforeternity.org. Now, the medical article continues by trying to say, well, of course, a lot of morality has been influenced by religion, but then also people of different religions can have different viewpoints. And he says, quote, certain Jews and Muslims believe that the embryo deserves to be assigned the moral status of a human after 40 days of development. Many Catholics believe the same, and many have written to me expressing those views based on their own reading of church history. Now, not to be an apologist for the Roman Catholic Church, as I am not a Roman Catholic, the official position of the Roman Catholic Church itself is that human life begins at conception. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church's official position is that contraceptives itself are not moral. And so any interference, any abortion at any stage, and even trying to prevent pregnancy between like a husband and wife is also not moral. So that's the official Catholic Church position. But there are people in the tent, the large tent of Roman Catholicism who come from liberal positions. And what they're going to do is they're going to look at what some early church writers said and say, hey, this is a Catholic position. And we'll look at that a bit. So, you know, I mentioned Jews and Muslims. And so, yes, in Islam, in Sahih al-Bukhari 3208, it mentions that the soul is breathed into, 
an embryo after it mentions what allegedly happens at 40 days gestation. So according to Bukhari, an angel records the deeds, the livelihood, the death day, and the final salvation status, whether the person is a rebel against a law or will ultimately be obedient to a law and attain paradise and stuff. That's written at 40 days gestation. And then also it seems to say that the soul is breathed into this embryo at that time. And so it's claiming that human life begins at 40 days gestation. Now, Muhammad likely got this from Aristotle, who made a similar claim, and later Augustine, who was the early church father in the 4th century. Augustine studied Aristotle and Plato, and he also, in his writings, made statement about that, that possibly the soul comes upon a, a human at 40 days, or that it has life, or it begins life at 40 days after conception. Now, what would we take from that if we are to regard Augustine? None of the early church writers, including Augustine, had microscopes or ultrasounds to see what goes on there before quickening when a mother would feel a baby kick or move. Some early church writers had different theories about embryology, but you know what they all had in common? They all believed abortion was wrong at any point. They all held that humanity was sacred, that human life was sacred. So even the ones like Augustine, who just ignorantly was parroting Aristotle about the 40 days thing, Augustine was in no way saying, well, if life begins at 40 days, then anything before that is not sacred and abortion's okay at that point. No. He argued that taking away a potential human life is wicked and wrong and murder. Now, I've read every early church writer that I can get a hold of, and you know, you can listen to a series of quotes from them in an episode of Truth Espresso. I did a series called Abortion Fiction. Some of the early episodes of Truth Espresso back in 2019. And I tried to find everything that early church writers had to say about abortion, and they were all in total agreement. Whether or not they held to life beginning at conception or not, they all agreed that you don't destroy the human embryo. You don't do abortions. It's wrong. It's evil and it's murder. So anyone who tries to use Augustine, any church writer who somehow either was ignorant or just didn't know or proposed the idea that human life began later than conception as an argument for abortion, they're taking them out of context. Now, continuing on with the article, quote, the concept of brain death is accepted worldwide. Even in the most religious societies, no one argues that human life continues to exist when the brain is irreversibly unable to function. What differs is the procedure for determining brain death. Unquote. And then later on, a few paragraphs down, he says, quote, So, too, we all seem to be in agreement that there must be a point at which moral status should be conferred on an embryo or fetus. However, we seem to have a harder time defining that point regardless of the facts, unquote. So, you don't say, 
What are the motivations, I would ask, that lead some people to want to push that status later, that moral status that we confer on an embryo or fetus, so-called reproductive freedom? Could that be a motivation that some people, yeah, I've certainly seen that in arguments for abortion. Easier access to laboratory specimens. That seems to be at least a suggestion that the author of this article is saying, like, in my field of work, I deal with things that would kind of bring up ethics problems if we are to regard human life in terms of ethics as beginning at conception or at fertilization. Now, I would say that it's impossible to separate one's view on this topic from what one accepts morally. For instance, if one highly values laboratory research and discovers that experimenting destructively on human adults turns out to be the most successful way to advance medicine, One might be tempted to figure out who among the population of human adults to devalue and dehumanize for that very pursuit. Often humans will find out in their specialized experience in life, they might be tempted to make moral judgments based on what works for them. If one highly values his own personal pleasure and reproductive freedom, He may turn a blind eye to abortion, to what abortion does, and even try to find as many compelling arguments to defend a thesis in which his lifestyle just so happens to be a byproduct of his arguments. So, yes, indeed, as this doctor says, we seem to have a harder time defining that point regardless of the facts if we don't recognize that there is such a thing as absolute truth that should dictate our moral judgments, not what might work for us in particular, but necessarily what works for humankind in general, which could only work as such if we recognize that the God of the Bible necessarily exists. Now, next quote from the article... I made an analogy comparing embryos created for stem cell research to a Home Depot. You don't walk into a Home Depot and see 30 houses. You see materials that need architects, carpenters, electricians, and plumbers to create a house. An egg and a sperm are not a human. A fertilized embryo is not a human. It needs a uterus and at least six months of gestation and development, growth and neuron formation and cell duplication to become a human. To give an embryo created for biomedical research the same status even as one created for in vitro fertilization, let alone one created naturally, is patently absurd." Now, where this analogy breaks down is the fact that human development is intrinsic. We're not taking outside materials and constructing a human. A fertilized egg has all the information that it needs to construct itself. So we're not taking materials like such as the example of Home Depot and having lumber and parts and stuff like that and building 30 houses, 
The fertilized egg is a human at conception, at the moment of fertilization, because it has everything within it to develop the continuum of the human being, all the way up till birth and all the way up till death. Everything, all the DNA exists in that fertilized egg. It just needs nurturing. It needs a place to implant and it needs sustenance to help it to grow. Just like a car has a mechanism to process fuel, it has everything within it to be able to run. It just needs the fuel input I mean, think of it more as a car that can even run itself. It just needs the fuel. <laughs> That's kind of a closer analogy, more of a, a human to construct itself, to develop itself. All it needs is a place to nurture it and give it the sustenance it needs to aid its development. Now, if we're talking about construction and Home Depot and components and stuff like that to evaluate judgment from a secular position, a materialistic position, trying to make these moral judgments about when do we determine if something is a human being, sure, and all humans inside or outside the womb even, a baby, a prepubescent, young adult, senior citizen, all of them are also collections of cells. And even down further, we're all collections of molecules, atoms, and subatomic particles. So, does that make any and all moral judgments nothing but futility? Does that make us no different from animals or plants or even stars? Like we're just stardust, so why would we even bother having any kind of moral limitations? It would just be nothing but futility if we were to reduce things down to just thinking of ourselves as atoms and molecules and subatomic particles. So if we don't address the presuppositions, the worldview, we can always resort to fallacies of composition or anything that depends on anything else as being inherently dispensable. The idea that religion, quote-unquote, i.e. the truth of Christianity, is something we can ignore when it comes to ethics and biology, any idea like that devolves into rejecting all presuppositions, intuitions, or absolute standards. You know, we can devolve any kind of materialistic social ethic down to nihilism. Next quote. Many other compelling arguments about the course of the natural reproductive process should cause one to doubt that something magical happens at conception, unquote. Now he talks about the strange things that twinning or even the egg that splits into twins and then somehow those cells merge back into one. Like it kind of, when we're trying to figure out humanity or individual humans and all this, it's kind of difficult but wait a minute, so it should cause one to doubt that something magical happens at conception? Except the absolute wonder of design, such that a single sperm from one organism and an egg cell from another organism can fuse together and result in a being that grows into tens of trillions of cells that together can produce either a female that starts with about four million of her own eggs or a male that produces more than a quadrillion sperm cells in a lifetime. 
yeah, no miracle there. The fact that this type of DNA information exists and is passed down through reproduction over and over again begs for us to consider conception as a miracle and of an incredible divine mind, I would say, to design this. And of course, only the divine mind expressed in the Bible. Next quote, it comes down to the question, is it a moral good to sacrifice one life if more lives will thereby be spared? Does the mother of five hiding from the Gestapo have the moral duty or right to smother the crying baby so the whole family will not be caught and shot? Unquote. So here we go with a thought experiment where if we come up with a difficult situation where we have to choose between two destructive results that, wait a minute, thought experiments are always entertaining in philosophy. They stretch our brain to figure out the least evil given two less than ideal situations, such as this Gestapo incident. How do these dilemmas justify elective abortions, I would ask? Just because a hypothetical scenario can make it difficult or impossible to save all lives, does that justify killing an unborn child for convenience, for example? Anyone can come up with the excuse that having a so-called unwanted pregnancy, even among a well-to-do husband and wife, can be harmful. If we interpret harmful to mean any and all emotional distress from sleepless nights, for example, or having to work harder to take care of a child, anything can fall under emotional harm or mental distress. Or the life of the mother, for example, can be defined as the emotional distress or even, say, a reason that a man might claim to not want a pregnancy is that now he's going to have to work harder and have less money to spend on himself. How does a philosophical choice between one tragedy versus another tragedy mean, therefore, that anyone can simply end the life of a child simply because someone decides that they just don't want the child? That's what I always uh, fail to see when people try to bring up these philosophical thought experiments like my wife and I did an episode in a, a series on abortion earlier on in the fall of 2020, and one of them was a guy on Twitter, a science fiction writer, and he tried to come up with this philosophical thought experiment that he said basically ends all pro-life arguments because it was the burning fertility clinic. You have to choose between rescuing, like, if I remember correctly, a five-year-old child versus rescuing a container full of something like a thousand embryos. And then he has an argument that if you choose the child, well, then you can't really hold your pro-life position correctly because, therefore, human life, in your view, doesn't begin at conception because you picked to save one life over a hundred or a thousand or something. Lives that were sitting there in a, in a vat. But then on the other hand, if you choose to save the embryos instead of the child, then he would verbally shoot you down and call you a monster who has no business even making moral arguments because you saved a bunch of lifeless embryos instead of a screaming five-year-old child. 
yeah, we talked about that. We'll provide a link to that episode in the show notes if you want to listen to that, how we address that philosophical argument. But all that to say, giving thought experiments like that doesn't justify abortion. It doesn't justify willfully, intentionally taking a life. Hey there, friends, family, foes, and lurkers alike. This is Daniel Minnick, the host of the Truth Espresso podcast on the Christian podcast community. And I want you to check out Voice of Reason Radio with Chris Honholtz and Richard Story. Chris and Rich are two guys with big hearts who will bring you a show every week that is sure to be challenging, encouraging, and biblical. Voice of Reason Radio with Chris Honholtz and Richard Story is part of the Christian podcast community. Check them out at slavetotheking.com. That's slavetotheking.com. And tell them Truth Espresso sent you. Next quote from the article, he says, quote, Intention is an interesting ethical concept that we seem to understand intrinsically. We see it everywhere, save for cases of recklessness and negligence. Intention is a clear marker of guilt in our legal system. Crimes are weighed, guilt is determined, and punishment is meted out based on intention. Charges of manslaughter and murder in the third, second, and first degrees are all determined by the level of intention of the killer. The same goes for determining whether crimes are misdemeanors or felonies, unquote. Yeah, I would agree that intention, of course, intention there, recognizing human consciousness and the uniqueness of humanity, even to recognize intention and have a concept of morality, argues for Christianity. But somehow most abortion advocates can't evaluate intention to evaluate abortion. They will argue the extreme cases of rape, incest, or saving the life of a mother to justify that the legal right to abortion is necessary, but then they also will claim that any intention for abortion is justified because it's a right. From my experience that I've seen, and I've seen lots of arguments for abortion on social media, What I see is advocating unhinged, unrestricted hookup culture as an inalienable right. In fact, it seems to be the greatest right that any human can have and should strive to have. It's a greater right than free speech or property rights themselves. Therefore, abortion on demand without apology and paid for by everyone else is the greatest civil liberty for society to obtain. You know, I'm not exaggerating. I see that most comments, when I see someone who gives an anti-abortion argument, most comments underneath that are things to the extent of what happens in the womb is none of your concern. What happens in anyone else's womb has zero concern for anyone other than the woman and basically her body, her choice. No concept of the why of anything other than Well, any reason for abortion is completely justified purely based on bodily autonomy. Now, next part of the article, quote, Does a clump of cells take on a different character if I have no intention ever to let it develop? 
Does it take on a different character if I do intend to have it develop? Say, by reimplanting it into a woman's uterus? I think not. It is the same clump of cells, no matter what my personal intentions are for it. The cells are what they are and should be evaluated on their own terms, not mine. This ultimately is why we should set aside our personal beliefs and accept that a clump of cells is decidedly not a human being. Your parents may have intended for you to become a doctor. Should you feel lessened by the fact that you became a professor instead? Unquote. So, let me say, if technology advances such that we can study embryos in a lab, that somehow erases the inherent dignity of human life at these experimental stages? No doubt, uh, Gazaniga has personal beliefs. He has admittedly expressed them in this article. Just because a human at a stage he calls a clump of cells can have life put in suspended animation doesn't mean the belief that we should respect human life and not treat it as dispensable is merely a personal belief. For example, if we could freeze human adults into suspended animation and implant them somewhere and revive them, does that mean we can treat them now as a clump of cells and decidedly not a human being? The fact that we even have beliefs in some sort of ordered society and ethics and that human being even matters makes no sense in a merely materialistic universe. It can only make sense with the Christian worldview. All attempts at imperfect ethics are merely borrowing from Christianity while trying to deny its relevance. The next quote from the article, quote, Mere possession of the genetic material for a future human being does not make a human being, unquote. And then a little later in the paragraph, quote, A purely genetic description of the human species does not describe a human being. A human being represents a whole other level of organization as distinct from a single embryo as an embryo is distinct from an egg and sperm, unquote. Now, I would ask according to what absolute standard? The doctor here says that we need to study embryology and we need to recognize stages of development. Well, sure, but it's also a continuum. It's also the same organism. So according to what absolute standard do we somehow have to distinguish embryo from fetus, from human being for these certain purposes? Like, is there a moment of time in which we could distinguish between medicine and murder, as I've asked before? Why shouldn't I be free to reject his premise, we're all just collections of cells after all. We're all indescribably small specks compared to galaxies with massive balls of energy that aren't conscious themselves and wouldn't care if they somehow were to incinerate us all in a nanosecond. All attempts at ethics without an absolute standard are futile illusions, I would say. They're vain attempts to play God. Next quote. My life and your life began at conception, but when my life began and when life begins are different questions, unquote. So how do we distinguish medicine from murder, I would ask. Do words even have meaning then? Next quote. 
embryos are not individuals. As a father, I may react to a sonogram image of a nine-week-old embryo and see a future child. As a neuroscientist, I know that that creature cannot survive outside the womb for another 14 weeks, unquote. So, two people or two different mindsets can look at the same thing and treat them differently? Yeah, that's kind of my point when we're trying to talk about ethics and morality here. So, why is your opinion in this article even supposed to matter to me? And why does the ability of a creature to survive outside the womb determine whether it should be allowed to survive at all? Why does it justify killing it? I know that this doctor can see that the womb was designed, by God of course, to nurture that which cannot survive on its own. In another sense, a newborn baby cannot survive on its own outside the womb without the intelligence of other humans to work for resources and to care for it and feed it. Well, what about a toddler? Is a toddler viable? What about even many eight-year-olds? Just as a woman's womb is designed to nurture the dependent unborn, so our brains and our hands and our feet are designed to nurture the dependent born. The argument that only those who are in an indefinite state of viability, so-called, to so-called survive on its own, are worthy of not being killed could be the same argument, I would say, to determine that handicapped people or people of unfavored ethnicities or any children of a dependent age, that they can be killed because they burden narcissists. So, kind of to sum up this, we know, even this doctor has admitted, that biological life begins at conception. We all know that. Some people try to say it doesn't, but we know that scientifically, biologically. We also know that not all living organisms have brain activity or the kind of consciousness that humans have. Do we understand everything there is to know about what our brain does when we sleep? What if there are things about our brains that kind of, when we're sleeping, in some kind of functional sense are like before the brain develops? Does that mean that we can kill someone in their sleep and be justified? What happens if we get hit in the head and go unconscious? If there's something about our brain that we can take certain criteria, such as proposed by the brain life theory, I would say that it always has this problem. Whatever aspect that you try to pick for whether we can evaluate the right to life that isn't mean it's a human being, it has biological life because God designed it, it begins at conception, any other point, any other criteria that you try to determine as to whether something is alive for the sake of ethics, you could also figure out a way that someone who is an adult or such or outside the womb can face some kind of unfortunate circumstance that has a mirror of that. If someone goes unconscious for some reason, can a caretaker of that person be in the right to kill him? Basically, the argument for abortion that I've seen devolves into bodily autonomy. You know, provide a link to the other, another article in the show notes by Dr. John Goldenring. This was from way back in 1986 
for the sake of time, I'm not going to go over that article. But one quote from the article says, The real issue in the abortion debate is what the U.S. Supreme Court said it was, rights in conflict. When is a mother's right to control her body exceeded by society's right to protect the unborn? Knowing a human is alive, be he eight weeks or 80 years old, does not mean that he should continue to live. That is a separate ethical question, unquote. So yeah, we have this idea of conflicting rights because we have the alleged right of absolute bodily autonomy, such as that of a pregnant mother, and the right of a human to live and so often from abortion advocates, they act as if it's some divine truth that the right to bodily autonomy is always above the right of the unborn to live. Now, on what basis do we treat bodily autonomy as an absolute and transcendent right? There are all kinds of natural forces and even forces from other humans that can limit what a narcissist might consider bodily autonomy to the fullest extent. Remember the toddler example that I've brought up before. A woman has to use her body to take care of a toddler outside the womb too. There is no absolute bodily autonomy there. Where there are needs and labor to meet those needs, there is no absolute bodily autonomy. It's interesting how many abortion advocates I see on social media who demand that those who are against abortion are nothing but forced birthers or embryophiles or whatever because they don't all support certain socialist ideas. It's shocking just how many I see demand universal this and universal that, universal health care, universal child care. Basically, nothing that touches health care should carry a price tag. Of course, it has to be paid for one way or another, but for what people in the United States demand and that are used to having, the level of taxation or theft would have to be enormous. The amount of labor that the average adult would have to do to pay for this kind of scheme would be enormous. So what about that bodily autonomy? What about the bodily autonomy of those who don't want to be forced to work with their hands and brains to pay for whatever anyone else would like to demand for free from society? As I said, ultimately there has to be an absolute standard and with materialistic secular ethics, you cannot arrive at an absolute standard of morality. It ultimately boils down to, as they make fun of Oh, your arguments against abortion come from religion. Well, yes. If you want to call Christianity a religion, yes. I admit it, guilty. And I'm going to stick with it because there's no way anyone could ever have a consistent position on this issue without the absolute standard that comes from an absolute God. And that absolute standard is expressed in Genesis 9-6 that says, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. That verse explains why abortion or murder or anything else like that is wrong because we're created in the image of God. Even a fertilized egg has all the information of a human being. It's created in the image of God. 
Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. Yes, all the wisdom of the world, and there's a lot of wisdom to be had. But as the doctor said, you know, we end up mixing morality into biology and we end up with confusion. No, confusion is not having an absolute standard that is necessary that comes from God and his word. Lean not unto thine own understanding. And John 17, 17, Jesus Christ himself said, sanctify them, referring to his disciples, sanctify them, set them apart through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And yes, if you don't hold the word of God up as the ultimate standard, you're going to be trying to figure out morality. You could justify abortion for all kinds of different reasons. You could be trying to figure out where to draw the line between medicine and murder. Does life begin at brain activity? I think that trying to figure out a moral case for treating it that way utterly fails. So I hope that this episode was helpful and stay tuned for the next episode of Truth Espresso and God Bless. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso.